Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and associate professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined with Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and dean of students at RTS. Hey, Peter. Hey, Scott. Also joined by instructor in New Testament and senior pastor, Paul Jean. Hey, Paul, how are you? Hi, Scott. It's good to be here with you all. Great to have you. Dr. Tommy Keene is not with us. He's on vacation this week, but we do have Dr. Gray Sutanto, assistant professor of systematic theology. Hey, Gray. Hey, Scott. Great to be here today. Great to have you. And we also have a special guest, Dr. George Herring professor at Free University in Amsterdam, and I'm going to pass this conversation over to Gray to lead this and to make introductions and start off the conversation. So, Gray, take it away. Thanks so much, Scott. It's such a great delight and privilege to have Professor George Herring here with us, who I consider to be a friend but also a mentor in the last five years. His influence through his writings on Kuiper especially had been really uh, impactful for my own uh, scholarship, for my own life. And so I'm really grateful to have him here. I do see kind of a coalescing of two worlds that I've been involved in, both in Dutch neo-Calvinism on the one hand and now at RTS Washington. So I'm really, really glad that you're here, George. As Dr. Red had said, George is the professor of history at the Free University of Amsterdam, and he's also the director of the Neo-Calvinism Research Institute, which is an institute based in Kampen and Holland. And that institute basically heads up research, both constructive and historical, theological, philosophical, on Kuiper and Bavink, and also trying to apply their insights to the modern world. And if you're not aware about it, their website, neocalvinism.org, is also a great resource for anyone to look into the primary sources of Kuiper and Bavink. All of their Dutch material are there, so there's really no excuse for anyone who wants to look into these things and look into the primary sources, because it's so readily available for you. And so definitely check out that website. And George is a director of that. So I'm really excited again for him to be here, really interested and really keen on forming a good theological and academic relationship between uh, our campus and also of the Neo-Calvinism Research Institute, where, where George is at. So George, we are again glad to have you here to talk specifically today about Abraham Kuyper. We know that this year particularly is the centennial for Kuyper's. Uh, death. So we're, wanna, we're, we're interested in just talking about his legacy. There was supposed to be two particular Kuiper Centennial conferences this year, one in New York and another one in Amsterdam that was supposed to happen in April in New York and then November in Amsterdam. But because of COVID, things uh, have shifted. Plans have been revised. So uh, we'll see what happens to the Amsterdam conference in November. It might go online. It might not. We'll see. But we're just interested to talk about Abraham Kuyper and his legacy. And George, you are the man to talk to, to about that because you are the historian extraordinaire on Kuyper and especially in Dutch neo-Calvinism in Holland and beyond. So could you tell us a little bit about why Abraham Kuyper is so influential? What was the most important aspects of his legacy for Christian theology and beyond? We'll begin there. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, in the first place, thank you for having me and inviting me uh, to talk about uh, Abram Kuyper. And that's, of course, uh, a great pleasure for me to do. 
I like that very much, but it's also very interesting that I can do that with you and people from Washington DC from the seminary over there. So I, I, I appreciate this very much. Um, yes, Abram Kuyper. Um, Abram Kuyper is of course a 19th century figure and uh, in that sense almost forgotten in, in, in the Netherlands, though he was very influential uh, as, as a political figure. Right? That, that was of course, that is, uh, most people know him as a politician in the Netherlands. He was prime minister from 1901 till 1905. Uh, he founded the first uh, political party in the Netherlands, the anti-revolutionary party. Um, and he is also famous uh, as a journalist and um, also famous because he split the, let's say, national church in 1886. He separated with a group of uh, reformed members and founded reformed churches in the Netherlands. But he's not very known anymore for his theological works, in the Netherlands anyway. So in the Netherlands, people have a sense that, well, that has all been. It's, it's, it's the past. Uh, we, we have gone beyond this and uh, we don't talk very much about him anymore. And not many dissertations are written on Kuiper in Dutch, etc. And in the Netherlands, people are always surprised when they hear that in the United States uh, or in Africa or in South America or Asia, uh, lots of, especially young people, are very much interested in, in, in the theology of, of Abram Kuyper, but also in his social ideas. And, and the same goes, of course, for Herman Bavink, who is lesser known in the Netherlands, even lesser known. Um, so they are surprised and they, what, 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 what is going on over there? And many people, of course, say, well, I guess they are lagging behind. One day they will wake up just like us and, and then he, they, they, they will see that it's, it's very parochial, it's very 19th century and, and uh, we have all gone beyond that. But, well, I'm, I think uh, that's not true. So I, I, I think that, that uh, Kuiper um, still has influence in, in, in Dutch society. The, the way our society is organized today uh, still bears the mark of Abram Kuiper. I, I give two examples, uh, one in the field of education. In, in, in the Dutch educational system, the, the primary and secondary schools are able to get funding from the government also when they have a religious base. So Catholic schools, Jewish schools, Protestant schools, but also let's say neutral schools, public schools, they have the same rights to the, to, to the government funding. Uh, and that's, that's the basic idea of, of Abram Kuyper and his view of a plural society. And the same goes for our broadcasting system. Uh, all over the world we know, for example, the BBC in, 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 in Great Britain, that's one broadcasting company for the whole nation. Well, in the Netherlands, we don't have something like that. We have the Kuyperian system. That, that means that the Catholics have founded their own broadcasting company, uh, the Jews, the Muslims, uh, etc. The liberals uh, all have their own broadcasting company. People are complaining about it. Um, but at the same time, uh, it creates a lot of diversity uh, and, and you always have a choice and you hear uh, different opinions and especially minority opinions, uh, which is, I think, very important. And that still, this system still bears the mark of Abram Kuyper. People want to get rid of it, others want to defend it, etc. But that's, that's the case. And then we just talk about society. 
But I, I think also uh, uh, the, 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 the theology in the Netherlands, the history of the, of, of, in the 20th century in the Netherlands, uh, that's unthinkable without Abraham Kuyper. And people were either for or against him. So groups have been organized along that division line. For example, the introduction of Karl Barth in the Netherlands in the 1920s, 30s, that was not just because of the interesting the theology of Karl Barth, but it was also because he was an alternative for many people to Abram Kuyper. They wanted to get rid of Abram Kuyper, and there was Karl Barth, and Karl Barth was then the enemy of Abram Kuyper, the, 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 the critic of neo-Calvinism, etc. That's the way he functioned uh, in, in the Netherlands for a long time, for a long time. Yeah. So, um, I think his, his, his legacy is still there, and uh, I, I, I think that the influence of, of Kuiper is, uh, is, is, is longer and vaster than people imagine today in the Netherlands. And then I just talk about the Netherlands. And Kuiper is associated with the theological movement of neo-Calvinism too, right? Could yeah. you say a little bit about what that means exactly and maybe distinguish it from contemporary movements about new Calvinism? Right. Yeah. Neo-Calvinism is something distinct from that. What are the broad distinctives, both social, political, and, and theological of neo-Calvinism? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, when you talk about uh, neo-Calvinism, that, that, so that's a, a new way of uh, <coughs> doing Calvinism um, that started in the 19th century with Abram Kuyper. He was a Calvin scholar. And he, was, he started as a church historian. He wrote a dissertation on uh, the view on the church and he compared Calvin and Alasco, the, 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 the Polish reformer. And um, so he was well versed in the works of, of John Calvin. But, well, Calvin was mainly researched as a historical source in, 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 in his days. While he, after uh, he, he got converted in, in his first congregation, which he pastored, um, he, he, he got converted uh, to Calvinism and then he said, well, Cal Calvinism is not just something historical, it's something we should apply in the present situation in our society. So, and if, if you think, what, what is then specific? What, what, what makes it new? What is the neo in, 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 in neo-Calvinism? Now, uh, in the first place, um, Kuiper was lived in the 19th century and he, he accepted, let's say, let's say, or he embraced the fruits of the French Revolution when it comes, for example, to, to the separation of church and state, which Calvin, as we all know, did not know and did not, did not strive after. But uh, according to Kuiper, this was actually the best, let's say, the, the best way to work out the ideas of John Calvin was this acceptance of the separation of church and state. So that's, that's an important issue, a free church in a free nation, and that was his motto. Another thing I think that's, that's relevant when you talk about theology, that is the, the attention he gave to a common grace. Again, as we all know, uh, John Calvin did not pay much attention to common grace. He hardly mentioned it. Um, but uh, Kuiper made uh, a, a big thing uh, in his theology of, of, of common grace. The fact that God has a certain positive favor towards this world, which makes it possible for us to work uh, in this world. Uh, of course, there are all kinds of 
ambivalences in this idea, which I can talk about. But that's an important idea when it comes to theology. And of course, but that's, that's closer to Calvin, I think, his stress on the sovereignty of God. So all starts with the sovereignty of God. But that's, that's closer to Calvin, and that's not very much criticized. Uh, so uh, criticized is the idea of common grace, the separation of church and state. And in society, he defended very much a plural society. That is, of course, the Netherlands in the 19th century was, was dominantly a Protestant society. There were 40% of Catholics, but they had been second-rate citizens in the 17th and 18th century. Um, now they were on the same level with, with, with everyone after the liberal constitution of 1848. But still, of course, it was dominantly a Protestant nation. And Kuiper made the argument, well, if we really want to be a Calvinist nation, which, which he was after, then we should respect, uh, let's say, the freedom of conscience and the government should not uh, give any preference for any of the confessions. And even if people uh, want to leave Christianity and want to live as liberals, just well, then they should have the same rights and opportunities as people who are Calvinist or Catholic or Jew. So that is more or less a liberal idea, of course, but the liberals in the 19th century still had the idea that the public domain should be dominated by one worldview. And that was the liberal one, of course. So everyone who wanted to participate in the public domain had to, to leave his specific opinions behind and accept that the public domain, for example, the public school, was liberal. You were, of course, educated in Christianity, but in a very general way, and certainly not in a confessional way, either Catholic or Protestant. So um, that was the kind of society he envisioned, and that, of course, that implied... In his, in his opinion, that though the society was still Christian, very much Christian, it might become liberal, but then the liberals would have to respect the minorities uh, like uh, the Calvinists, etc. So it was, it was a rather dynamic view of society um, and it was not as fixed as the liberals wanted it, a, liber a public domain that's liberal, or the, most of the Protestants wanted it a Protestant public domain, if a Protestant public school, which looks more, let's say, like the, uh, like the American situation in the 19th century. It's a Protestant nation with a Protestant public school. And when the Catholics came in the United States, they founded their own institutions, but they were not public institutions. So in, in, in the Netherlands, so thanks to Kuiper, uh, this was different. So the, the public school, was on the same level and had the same rights as a Catholic school, a Jewish school, a Calvinist school. So that's the most, his most important, let's say his lasting social impact. Of course, he was a defender of general suffrage. So he was, he was a forerunner in this. He was uh, the first in Dutch parliament to accept what they called in these days, the radicals. So that's the socialists, the social democrats. And, and he, he also joined the socialists in their uh, strife, in their uh, fight to get a general suffrage. A, a general suffrage. Most of, most of the people were afraid of a general suffrage because people who were not educated, how could they vote and how could they make a good choice, etc. So that was still, the liberal view was rather dominant in the 19th century and liberals had the idea, um, well, you were only enlightened, of course, when you are a reasonable person. And how can you be a reasonable person? By getting educated, etc. So 
people had to be reasonable to get the voting right. So most of the people in the opinion, the rather elite opinion of the liberals, they were of course not fit uh, to make a choice because they were not educated. And then Kuiper introduced the idea in Dutch politics and changed Dutch politics for about 70, 80 years. And he said, well, it's not reason that should be the denominator, it should be worldview. And then the different worldviews, of course, should have their place in politics. Eh? He started in parliament in 1874 with this idea and he lost the fight. In, and in 1876, he had to leave parliament because he was overworked, because he was fighting on his own against the nation. Um, but later on, he started again uh, and he, he founded his political party. So he was the first to organize his, his voters. Uh, and that was an example that was followed by every other party in 10, 20 years. And so we succeeded in, in winning a majority. And in 1889, we had the first uh, government with Calvinists in it. And they changed uh, important laws, for example, the law on education, which made this equal level uh, situation possible. That's really helpful, George. When I think about neo-Calvinism and the way you just described it, right, I think about the combination of orthodoxy and modernity, right? There's this yeah. sense that orthodoxy should face the challenges of modernity by also answering some of its questions and also reshaping some of its answers according to the questions of the day, right? And yeah. the way you just described it just now is that the organic view is also incredibly important. For Kuiper, right, along with the, a lot of the moderns, they would argue that freedom of conscience should determine your confession, that freedom of yeah. conscience should determine your worldview. And so it shouldn't be mechanically enforced upon you from the top down by the government, but it should be voluntarily taken up according to the voice of the people. But that might lead to different confessional norms and different worldviews. And so the government, therefore, has to respect a kind of unity and diversity rather than wanting to enforce a uniformity, right? Liberals wanted to enforce a uniformity with regard to public schooling and so forth. But Christians or conservative, uh, conservatives, Christians, right? wanted to also enforce a kind of uniformity by saying that the Netherlands has to be a Protestant or a Catholic nation. But Kuiper kind of went in between these things and says, well, pox on both of your houses, neither conservatism per se, nor modernism per se, but rather worldview, a Christian worldview can actually be more tolerant than a modern worldview. Because now we have a plurality of worldviews in society and the government should give equal due to these, this, this diversity of views there. So could you say a little bit more about that orthodoxy and modernity relationship perhaps from neo-Calvinism and maybe invoke also Hermann Bavink in your view of Bavink's relationship to Kuiper in that sense. So, um, well, in, in, indeed, um, as is still the case in the US and I guess also, and also in the Netherlands is that uh, people always try to oppose orthodoxy and modernity. So if you are modern, you cannot be orthodox. And if you're orthodox, you, you, you are not modern. Um, and that's something, of course, Abram Kuyper tried to change. Um, as a matter of fact, he said, well, I'm, I'm the most liberal of all of you because I, I, I respect the freedom of conscience um, in, in, in the public domain and, and you don't, don't, don't want to make room for that. So by, by stressing his orthodoxy, he at the same time stressed, of course, that he wanted to be modern. But many people experiences as a tension. Also many Protestants, by the way, and many, many people that supported him, for example, in the school struggle, 
in, in, in the struggle to get equal rights for Christian education. Well, that, that was important to them. But when the implication of his ideas became clear, and that, that meant that the society had to be plural, and that we had to respect other opinions on the same footing as we respect our own opinion, uh, then it became difficult for some people because many conservative Christians, well, still were very critical of, 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 of modernity. And um, in that sense, of course, Kuiper gave also food for that idea because Kuiper as, as, a, as a figure, in the way he operated, he was a very antithetical figure. So he, he always, he loved debate. He was always in debate. Um, and if, if you read his works, you, you, all, you can always see that he has an opponent. He needs an opponent to, to make his opinions clear and to develop his opinions. He always needed the opponent. Um, and that was the way he wrote and that was the, may, the way he could make things clear to, to, to the people who read him in, 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 in the newspapers and in, 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 in Parliament, for example. Um, so that was the way he did it. And of course, he, he opposed, of course, uh, that what people uh, usually called modern. That's the ideas of the French Revolution. Eh? His, his party was the anti revolutionary party so he was anti the French Revolution but that was mainly let's say the motive behind the French Revolution had the motive ni dieu ni maître no lord and no master uh, we want to get rid of all authority we want to get rid of all tradition well that of course that motive uh, was rejected by Kuiper, but not the ideas that the people should have influence, that people who were not educated should have the same kind of rights as other people. So he was very, he was very sensitive to elites. Eh? He was very critical of elites. He was self, of course, an upbringer. Hey, he, he, he was some, he, he was someone who uh, he was the son of a minister, and so he. he by his work, he came to belong to the elite, but he was always very critical of the elite. And he was very critical also of people who made large amounts of money. So there's, let's say the financial elite. Um, he was always, he was always in opposition to, 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 to these people. So, and that could give, easily give the impression that neo-Calvinism was, uh, let's say, an anti-movement. Eh? It rejected the French Revolution and it wanted to create People had the idea that he wanted to create a Calvinist state where there was no room for anyone else but Calvinists. And that was what people feared. And they had also the idea if, 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 if you looked, if, if Kuiper would be in power, which he was from 1901 till 1905 as a prime minister, then he will depose the queen and he will become the president of a new Dutch Republic. And that was, that was what people were afraid of. So that is the image that, 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 that Kuiper, and of course Kuiper was a very dominant person, and he was a fighter, um, and he was in the midst of any political incident in, uh, between the 1880s and let's say in 1910. So he was very, he was very visible, but um, that doesn't mean per se that neo-Calvinism is this anti-movement. Eh? I already gave examples from his ideas, which sound rather liberal, like the separation of church and state. But I'm, I'm always a little bit afraid that people associate neo-Calvinism with Kuiper only and describe 
neo-Calvinism along the lines of his character, eh? aggressive, polemic, trying to be dominant. And well, I always like to stress that, of course, there are more neo-Calvinists and there are also very different neo-Calvinists. And one example, of course, then is Herman Bavink. Herman Bavink is, is a completely different person if you compare him with Abraham Kuyper, and he also had personal his difficulties with Abraham Kuyper. Herman Bavink is not someone you could, uh, let's say, describe as antithetical. He, he was a son of a reformed minister, uh, as, as, as Kuyper was, uh, but he uh, slightly more orthodox. And... Um, he was very interested in, in modern culture and um, his idea was indeed that, uh, let's say, the French Revolution and the freedom of religion that, that came from that also in the Netherlands was something very positive, something we should embrace. It was also a challenge, of course, because it meant if, if you, let's say, before the French Revolution, we lived in what we call a Christian culture. It was the... We, we didn't have Christian schools in the 18th century. The school was Christian. The public domain was Christian. That was our mindset. And that is the, that's the difference that the French Revolution made. They, 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 they said, well, there are also different worldviews. And, I, and we introduced a liberal worldview, a worldview without God and where reason is on the throne. Um, and of course, that was not what Bavink appreciated, but what he appreciated was the challenge. The challenge that those liberals said, well, there are different worldviews. Well, then the question comes, what is ours? So suddenly the school has, had always been Christian, but now we had to motivate and to explain and to defend what a Christian school is, what the Christian character of a school is. We certainly had to explain that you had all kinds of politics, but there is also a Christian way of doing politics. And there is also a Christian way of doing art or a Christian way of doing science. And so suddenly the, the Christians were forced in the 19th century to reflect what they actually did in society and what was the relevance in society and what was their relevance in, 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 in society. So. Bavink appreciated the French Revolution in, in this way. And what he always did, uh, Kuiper was antithetical, but he always tried to get into conversation with his context, with, his, with the community he was in. Mm -hmm. uh, his, his, his best friend from his student days on was a liberal, was Snooker Gronje, who was a very uh, important uh, figure in, in, the, in, the, in the Western history of, of the study of Islam for example. And he was, he was a liberal re, 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 religiously, but was, a, was one of his closest friends. And also in classroom, he always stressed, well, we are Calvinist and we have to define what that is and we have to be very precise in that. But that does not mean that there is not a relation between Calvinist and Reformed and that there is not a relation between Reformed and Christian and between Christian and being human. So he always try, try to stress the relation and tr always try to get into conversation with his context. And that's, that's way different from Abram Kuyper. Kuyper 
uh, is not the man of, of, of conversation. If you, if you are in conversation with, with each other, you always have to accept that your conversation partner, um, well, may say something relevant. Uh, you, you have to be open to that, otherwise you cannot have a conversation. He may say something which is true, which you didn't know or which you had denied before, but you have to admit you were right on that point. I, I have to take that into account. Well, in, in, in Kuiper's works, you will never find something like that. Everyone is used as an opponent. And in Baving's work, you will always find the other as a conversation partner something that is dealt with respectfully. All the opponents of Kuiper complained. You are distorting my, my, my opinion. You are, you are framing me. Well, uh, Bavink, and you can see that, of course, in his, in his dogmatics, is a very good listener. He can very well express the relevance of the position of someone he does not agree with. Um, and people always say, when, when, if, even when they are criticized by Bavink, but you understood me right. I, I, I don't agree with you, but you understood me right and you presented my opinions in a correct way. Well, that's, as a matter of fact, you cannot say of Abram Kuyper. He will never do that. He will never do that. There is also, there's already a very big difference when it comes to the persons. And of course, that influences your theology. A dogmatics like Bavink has written, Kuiper could never write. We, we, we like him because he's so well-informed historically. He's so balanced in his judgments. Now, with Kuiper, never a balance. It's always opinionated. It's always with strong opinions, criticizing others, etc. And I'm, 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 I'm not after Kuiper. I'm not against him in this point because he was very much needed because, because it was a fight. It was a fight. And... Bavink also, uh, of course, would admit that. Of course, uh, Kuiper was in a fight and Kuiper has liberated the conservative or the orthodox people in the Netherlands and gave them their rightful position in society um, and made their theology res uh, being respected. But Bavink was just not the figure to, 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 to go into that fight. And if, if you approach neo-Calvinism from Bavink's point of view, you get... A, I, I think you get a more friendly, a more open picture of what neo-Calvinism neo is than we, when you talk with, with Kuiper. And you can see that in the Dutch tradition, there's always a debate. Are you, are you a Kuiperian or are you a Bavinkian? Are you on his side or on his side? And are you, and that's, of course, that's not correct, but are you antithetical? Or are you, let's say, on the side of common grace? Well, that's, that's not right, that division when it comes to Kuiper and Baving, but that's what has been made out of it. It's interesting. There are, that dynamic exists still, of course, in modern political discourse as well, especially even on, yeah. the, even on sort of the, the Christian side of things. You have the antithetical and something like the common grace or the synthetic yeah. side. Yeah. I, to continue the comparison and contrast that I think is very fascinating between Kuiper and Baving, in political discourse today and in political worldviews historically, there's typically some kind of you know, telos, there's some kind of end point, or we could even, you know, in theology, we have this term eschatology. Yeah. I'm not talking about the book of Revelation so much as where do you think your view is leading or what is your, what is your view on society and the direction it's going? And 
I know that Bovink was very aware of what was going on around him and he was patient on issues like you know, rising German ideologies and, and that sort of thing in his time. If you could compare and contrast the two, is there a clear sense of where they see history going either for Holland or for the West and sort of what, what, how they think they play a role in that? Or were they more of a, you know, was there more of a, like a, a spirit of trial and error of trying out policies, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't? Is, is there a sense of political eschatology in Kuiper and Bavink? And do they disagree or do they agree? Well, I, I think the reflection of eschatology um, has been stronger in the United States in the 20th century than it has been in the Netherlands and also with Kuiper and Bavink. Sure. But um, it is clear, of course, that they, of course, they thought about the future of, of, of Europe and they wrote about it. So Kuiper made, his, his, uh, made a trip around the Mediterranean in 1905-1906 after he stepped down as a prime minister. He traveled for nine months around the Mediterranean. It was in the first place, of course, to go to the Holy Land and, and, and to see the sites where, where, where Jesus had lived and worked and died. But um, he was also very much interested in the Islam. Because the Islam was awakening at the end of the, of the 19th century and the Ottoman Empire was imploding. It actually imploded in, in the First World War, as we all know, and then came Ataturk. So it was very interesting for us, uh, this, this, this vast Ottoman Empire, which was the face of Islam to Europe. Well, that is disappearing. It's falling apart. Russia took its part in the Balkan, uh, uh, Austria-Hungary took its part, um, in Egypt, England took its part. So, so it became smaller and smaller. But at the same time, the Islam was on the rise. So he was very much interested uh, what, what would that mean. And he, he, he traveled for nine months and he wrote about it. And he came back and gave lectures uh, on what he had seen on his tour. And he, one thing he did was warning Europe, warning Europe, because he said it's, it's a giant that's getting awake now, the, 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 the Islam. And what, what we do in the world is that we as Western world, we, we, we colonize other countries and what do we bring there uh, apart from what we try to get there, uh, money, trade, etc. But what, what do we bring there? We bring their education and we bring there the Christian faith. And there was a big debate going on uh, in, in the early 19th, uh, early 20th century when Kuyper was a prime minister on how should we deal with the rest of the world? And, and Kuyper proposed a kind of an ethical policy. We don't have the colonies to make our financial gains but we have the colonies as a duty. We have to educate the people and we have to bring them the Christian faith. The politicians in the Netherlands more or less agreed with Kuiper, on, but there was an issue, of course. What do we want to bring? Do we want to bring education or do we want to bring the Christian faith? Do, do we want to do mission? And Kuiper stressed the latter, as did Bavik. And he said that's needed because... The world, that of course was Kuiper's view, is driven by worldviews. People are driven by, 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 by worldviews. The world is driven by faith. So you can, you can educate people, but if you educate a Muslim, don't expect that he will become a Westerner or don't expect that he will accept our values because his values have nothing to do with our education. They are locked in their faith. They, they are based in their faith. So if you bring education, 
you optimist liberals, Kuiper said, you expect that they will become like us. But you are naive. You don't understand how the world is. The world is driven by faith. And also Bavink, who was a, a member of, uh, of the Senate, so of the, the first chamber, we say, so that's one part of parliament, uh, that's the Senate. He was member of Senate for a decade, for the last decade of his life. And he said in, in, in Senate, if you want to change the people in the Dutch East Indies, which was the largest colony, and is now the largest Islamic nation, Gray is living there. If, if you bring education, you won't change them. You have to replace their faith. You have to bring the Christian faith instead of the Islam. So that's the only way you can change the world. And that's our duty. And so we are not going to make money out of our college. Of course, that happens as well. But that's not the main reason. The main reason is that God called us to bring the gospel there. And now we have the opportunity and we should do that. That's the only way to change uh, this country. And Kuiper said, we really have to do this after he returned from his trip, because I see, I have seen in those countries, and he talks about Tunisia, he talks about Egypt, he talks about Turkey, certain part of Russia. I have seen Christians everywhere. I've met them. I've been to their church services, etc. I've talked with them. And what struck me is that those Christians, most of the times, are liberal Christians. And they think, oh, those Muslims, if we only educate them. He said, but we are wrong. So what we have to do is we have to work on our own Christian tradition. We have to become aware of it and we have to develop it because otherwise, that's what I have seen, he said, the Christian mission doesn't make converts among the Muslims. The Muslims are convinced. They are very much convinced of their opinion. He was very positive about that. He was impressed. He went to the, to the Hagia Sophia, the church we talk a lot about these days. He went to the Hagia Sophia when it was a mosque and he was in the service there and he was deeply impressed by the devotion, by the way these people gave their life to God, to Allah. And he, so he was very much impressed by that. And he said, well, we cannot simply change that by educating. What we have to do, we have to, we have to realize that we have to be as devoted to God as they are. We have to give our full life to God. And we have, we have to be convinced that if we don't stick to that, they will overrun us one day. So Kuiper was in the last part of his life, less than 10 years, let's say, he was rather negative about the future of Europe and of the Western world. If we don't take care of our heritage, eh, not just the heritage, but also the presence of our faith, if we don't make work out of that, one day we will get overrun. And well, you might say today, uh, that's going on in Europe. And let's say about, eight to 10% of, uh, the, of the population of Europe is now Islamic. And of course, in all the debates, also in the Netherlands and in all, all of Europe that's going on, it's of course about culture, about accepting different traditions, about how traditions enrich each other, etc. But the issue of Christianity versus another religion is never at stake. People don't talk about it. Don't talk. Anyway, they don't, they, they don't talk about that much. And especially the people who are not Christian, they say that's a non-issue. 
but for example, Angela Merkel, eh, who is the who is the chancellor of what what's her name of of of, of, of Germany, the leader of Germany, she once listened to people who complained, and he said, "Well, all, all those Muslims in our streets and our German cities, we we are not at home anymore, more, and 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 we fear them." Well, she gave a very good answer, I think. She said, "Well, if you fear them, maybe." You should make more work of your own faith. I would advise you go to church next Sunday. So that's more or less the same what Abram Kuyper said when he came back from his trip. He said, well, we should make work of our own tradition. Otherwise, we get lost. Mm -hmm. And Angela said, well, if, if you don't make work of your tradition, well, then it is your own, let's say, fault. It is your own mistake or you don't mind. Well, and those cultural differences, well, she, she, she said, well, that, that's, not really, that's not really the issue. If you think that faith is important, and Angela thinks so, um, then you should make work of your own faith. So Kuiper was very yeah, worried about the future of the, 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 the Western civilization. Uh, he, he, of course, he had, had the story that the civilization started in the Middle East, went to Europe, went to Great Britain, and went to the United States. So his hopes were on, on, on the United States eh? as, as, as what he saw a Calvinist country. That's a mistake, I think, but that's what his view was. That's what his view was. And Bafink, I think, uh, again, was more and less antithetical on this. So he said, well, I think things will change, but I also believe that God will be with us. So he is in history. He will join us from day to day. So he will also lead us with big things will change. He, he got, for example, students at about 1910 from South Africa who, wrote, who wanted to write a PhD at the Freie Universiteit Amsterdam, and those were white South Africans. And uh, uh, <clears throat> they started to talk about what we nowadays call apartheid, which was then, of course, in Nutsche there, but it, from 1948, it, it, it was the government system. And uh, Baving debated with them about this. And he said, well, I think, and you can see, find it in the Reform Dogmatics, um, I don't believe very much of those differences between races. And so I believe in the unity of mankind. Uh, God is one. His creation is one. Uh, humanity is one. So interesting ideas about these differences, the these theories about race. But, uh, well, I... I, I I, I don't care much uh, about all those ideas because I want to stress from thinking from scripture, I want to stress the unity of mankind. Um, so I have a question to my South African white students. So what, what about the blacks in your country? Well, and then they started to explain, of course, that those cultures were that different and they, they were not on the same level, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, Bavik said, well, okay. Um, but um, I, I, I don't think that this is a fixed situation. We have, you, you have to think about it. And so he believed that things would change. So he was critical of the South African situation and he thought from scripture and he said, well, I think we have to see each other as uh, all created in God's image uh, and we, that we don't accept each other yet because of a different color. That's true, I, I, I have to admit, but I don't say that this is a good situation. Things will change and um, the dominance of the West will disappear and other 
parts of the world were become more dominant. But as such, that is not a bad case. So he was more open to changes, while Kuiper was more worried. But a political eschatology, I, 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 I don't think they developed that. No, and you got at what I was asking, this kind of sense of where they thought history was going, not so much in a theological sense, no. but sort of cultural development. That's very, that's very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and I think those vignettes also show us that Kuiper and Boving were still very much men of their own times. And even us now working in the neo Calvinist tradition, we can draw from them, but at the same time have a present day facing motion as well, seeing that they grasp some things only in parts, especially in regards to race. Peter, you had a question. Uh, Professor, thank you so much. Uh, this is so intriguing and interesting. You know, for us Reformed Calvinists here in the West, our, our, in, in the context of the seminary, our general first introduction to uh, Abraham Kuyper is always his lectures on Calvinism uh, mm -hmm. that he addressed here, and it's required reading in many seminaries. Uh, I guess I'm curious, what, what was Abraham Kuyper's thought on American Christianity, or uh, I guess Presbyterianism of the day, since that was the dominant form of Christianity? What, what was his thoughts about the theological condition and status of the church, particularly here in the West during his time? Well, there is development in his ideas. At first, he was very positive. So um, when he started to, to enter the, the political scene in the 1870s, he started by reading the Tocqueville. He started by reading Edmund Burke. Um, and he got a very positive impression, especially from the Tocqueville and his uh, La Démocratie en Amérique, a very positive idea about the place of religion in American society. And in his view, as, as, as I already said, the development of civilization was like this. Uh, so it would come from the Middle East, then it came to... Uh, let's say Western Europe, then uh, Calvinism came, uh, Switzerland, France, uh, the Netherlands, Great Britain, and then of course the big jump over the Atlantic to the United States. And in his view, um, the United States was basically a Calvinist country. Not that most of the people were Calvinists, but the ideas and the, the governmental system was, was all imbued uh, by, by Calvinism. Eh? So he, he talked, of course, uh, he talked about the founding fathers. He talked about uh, the pilgrims who came from the Netherlands via Great Britain to Massachusetts um, and founded there a nation that was imbued with Calvinist ideas. We, now, we all know, of course, now that's, that's historically not correct. But in his days, there was a big debate going on uh, about the question, what makes America tick? And so America was in its Gilded Age, in the second part of the 19th century. They had had the, their civil war and well, the economy was booming and, and uh, it was on the verge of becoming a world power. But well, they missed of course one thing and that was something like a tradition. What, what, makes, what makes the United States tick? And many people, refer then to Great Britain. And this, is, this is the tradition of the Magna Carta. This is the tradition that was brought here by the, by, by the British. And of course, we send them home in 1776, but still this is mainly British. 
And then there was another school of thought that said, well, no, it comes from the Netherlands. It comes from the Calvinists. It comes from the ideas of the Dutch Republic. And well, there were all, all kinds of funny things like uh, the American flag looks, for example, like more or less like the Dutch flag. But it's also the, the ideas of how to run a republic and how to make room for every confession, for every faith that, according to American historians as well, uh, but also to Kuiper, who joined them, and he said, and that's also what he explained in his Stone Lectures, you are a Calvinist nation. So that's, he, he was very positive. Then we talk about the political system, of course, and then he was invited by Princeton. And Princeton, in those days, that was Charles Hodge, that was B.B. Warfield. Uh, they, they, they were the main figures over there. And especially B.B. Warfield welcomed Kuiper and also Bavink later on very much as, as allies in his fight against uh, liberalism, against Charles Briggs, etc. Um, so Warfield already realized that Calvinism was on the defense in the, in the American culture at about 1900. So Kuiper was an important ally. But of course, Kuiper was not there um, to defend Calvinism, but to introduce it. And so he, he, he wanted to attack, more or less. And he was not very fond of the apologetic method Warfield applied. He was way more, of course, uh, influenced by his ideas of different worldviews and competition, etc. So he had a very positive view about Calvinism. And he had the impression that he could update Calvinism in the United States. But when he returned home in 1898, and in the years after, he realized the United States is not as Calvinistic as I thought it was. It, it's, it's way more influenced by Methodism, for example, when it comes to Protestantism, and the liberal theology is strong. So I, I maybe was too positive about the United States. But still, till his death, he appreciated what the United States does. Of course, what the United States did in, in the First World War to Europe, and they, they came to help Europe, and that eventually uh, uh, made an end to the war. So he, he was very positive about Wilson, for example. Um, but um, he, he was too idealistic about what the United States was. And that's again is different from Herman Bavink, who visited the United States in 1892 and in 1908 to give the Stone Lectures. But he, he, both times, he said, well, of course, this is a beautiful country with a lot of energy and uh, a, a revered place uh, for uh, religion and society, etc." But he said, in the end, it's, it's mainly Methodist. Calvinism is only a, a small faction in, in American society. And uh, he, he was way more realistic in this than, than Kuiper was. And Kuiper had a very positive, high vision of the United States. And well, he got a little bit disappointed in 1898. He was mistaken a bit, but still he stayed on keeping very positive views on the United States. Well, well, Bavink was also, also realized, for, for example, when he talked about education in the United States, that it was often very shallow. Yeah, it, 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 was not, 
it was not as thorough as Calvinism. He even thought maybe Calvinism is not fit for the United States because Calvinism is a religion which fits best to people who have had a very severe struggle for people who have been persecuted. The whole idea of election, let's say, so the, the, the fact that you are chosen, well, that is, of course, is, is, is a message that speaks to you when you are persecuted. That's something you can rely on. That's something, something hopeful. Well, let's say in the Methodist context, being chosen, well, that's, that's your choice. You can choose to serve God. Well, the persecuted Calvinists fully had to depend on their God. And they said, well, of course, I can make choices, but in the, in the end, it's God who chooses me. So Calvinism, he says, is fits better with a people that has suffered, that has been persecuted like the Dutch who, who suffered uh, from uh, the Spanish occupation and from, from, from the Catholic persecution, etc. But the United States, well, did they ever suffer? Did they ever suffer? So I can understand that they are more inclined to choose for Methodism instead of Calvinism. It, it, it fits the American character. I wonder, Professor, you know, uh... Abraham Kuyper's um, disappointment with uh, the state of uh, Calvinism in the U.S. is it's almost prophetic as just as, uh, several decades after his Stone Lectures, we, we began to see the real rise of, mo of modern thought in uh, theological liberalism here in the U.S. with the, uh, with the demise of Princeton and, and so forth. I don't know if he was able to almost in the same way prophetically see the rise of the church in, in Southeast Asia, you know, if you've seen that migration of the central, central state of the church moving from mid, the Middle East to Europe, across the Atlantic into the Americas, I mean, the, the state of Western missions into, in the Southeast Asian nations would have been, it would have been difficult to predict the rise of the church at, at that stage, but did, what, did he say anything about that? Well, he, he did say something about it. Of course, he, he, he did not predict that uh, Christianity would move to the Southern Hemisphere or that Christianity would be on the rise in Southeast Asia, etc. That's not what he explicitly said. But he did say that if, we, uh, if, if he thinks about the course of history, as I said, from Europe, Great Britain, to the United States, to California, that's how he ended uh, in his own lectures. And later on, he wrote, but it has to jump the ocean again. It has to go to Asia. That, that was what he previewed. So, um, and that, in, in the end, it would return and in the Middle East, and in his opinion, that was the end of history. So, civilization made a full circle uh, uh, around the earth, let's say. So, that's, that's what he said. So, he, he was of the opinion that something would happen in Asia, for sure, for sure. And the same counts for Africa. Of course, he, you, you may have noticed what he, what he wrote about Africa and about uh, the, the people living there, very critical. Uh, they, they, they are not part of the live stream of this world. But he also said situations can change. And so he, he was not, let's say, someone uh, who, who uh, just like Bavink, who said, well, this is a fixed situation. No, it might develop. And one day, Africa will awake, he says. 
and that's the, he, and he said the same of of, of, of Asia, but he 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 did not predict uh, the rise of Christianity uh, in more in more specific ways than this. If our listeners are interested, we should mention that George actually hosted a documentary series on Kuiper's travels to the United States, and that's actually available on Vimeo.com. I think all the episodes are available there, and that actually aired in Dutch national television. So. It was very interesting. It's a very well-recorded and well-documented uh, uh, documentary. So definitely take a look at that if you're interested in that. Go for yeah, it. And, and, and they have English subtitles, huh? Yes, so English everyone subtitles. who does not speak Dutch, which is a language of heaven, as you know, but if you don't speak it, uh, there are subtitles. <laughs> yes, indeed. They're absolutely fascinating. And you get to see and listen to more of George Herring, which is always an upside. George, maybe the last question here. As we can probably observe right now, I think neo-Calvinistic studies, especially Kuyperian involving studies, is on the rise. What can you say about the state of neo-Calvinistic scholarship comparing perhaps the state in the Netherlands and the United States and beyond? Okay, well, the situation in the Netherlands is such that there is, there is still an amount of uh, people in academia who, who know the works of, of Bavik and Kuiper, who know their historical context, etc., and also who know, let's say, the works of Skilder or of Burkhauer or of um, Ritterboss, if you talk about the New Testament. Uh, so the, the, the works of Voss, of course, as I should mention. So that knowledge is still there. But I wouldn't say that uh, the Dutch community who works on this is very vibrant. So it's, it's not is not very strong. The strong communities are on the, are in the United States, are are uh, let's say in in in, in Asia, uh, are are in, so are abroad seen seen from the Dutch point of view, and that's something uh, we we have started to realize. Uh, let's say from the 1990s on, has started maybe to realize since uh, Baving's reforms dogmatics have, have been translated by John Bolt and John Vreend at about 2000. Then suddenly we realized that there was a whole generation of young students in the United States and in the English-speaking world who got very much interested in something that we considered to being disappearing from, 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 Dutch, society, from Dutch society. So suddenly we got an impulse. So it, it's some... There were so many young people who were interested in the tradition in which we have been raised that we got enthusiastic again and, for example, started to found the, the institute which I'm running now. But the, the place where, where Kuiper and Bavink are studied, uh, when, we call about, when we talk about numbers, that's mainly outside uh, of the Netherlands. It's, 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 of course, in Scotland, in Edinburgh, with James Eglinton. But it's on many places, and also in your place, in the United States. And it's being supported by those translations. So, of course, uh, someone like Richard Muller, uh, the historical theologian of, of, of uh, 17th century scholasticism, etc., um, he, he always said, it's a pity that they didn't translate Bavink in the 1920s. Then Bart wouldn't have that big influence in the United States, if only Bavink had been translated. I don't know if that's true, but it's interesting that he he realized that Bavink has been translated rather late. It, it, it happened only at about 2000. And after that, and that's now going on, of course, we have now a 12-volume translation project 
uh, of Abram Kuyper's collected works. And uh, that's very helpful uh, for the many international students, also international students that come to Kampen to study, but especially, of course, in the United States and elsewhere. So I think that, that uh, the research is now uh, gaining momentum and it's also a new kind of research because the research which we have done for a century in the Netherlands was always related to the Dutch debates and the Dutch tradition. But all those international stu students uh, see the broadness of this tradition and see how they can apply it in their own situation. So the context makes, I think, neo-Calvinism internationally way more relevant than it has been when it had been only in Dutch hands, to say it that way. So I think this, this is a very good time for neo-Calvinism. It's the spreading of neo-Calvinism, but also the intellectual quality, because people from different countries and different cultures ask different questions. And it turns out that those different questions, they, they feel they resonate in the works of Kuiper and Baving. They get their answers. So they see things we from our Dutch situation could not have seen because we, are, we don't have that different culture. So I, I think it's a very inspiring moment, uh, this, 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 this decade, because of the fact that people in so many countries start to research and well, relate uh, neo-Calvinism to, to present-day issues, to, to identity politics, to racism, etc., but also to questions like ecology, uh, how, how, how do we deal with nature? So I, I think in a world community, I, I think neo-Calvinism will, will prove its importance and uh, it, it will, I, my, my prediction is, is that it will become larger and larger. That's fascinating. It reminds me of Bavink's doctrine of uh, the image of God developing and becoming more full as more humans are born. Yeah. And the idea that the, the test of a person's work is how well it applies across the whole of the image of God. And, and, and your comments in that regard are fascinating and, and illuminating for me. And, and this, you know, we spent a lot of time at the seminary talking about how we need not idealize our influences and yet at the same time recognize the things that they articulate that have application even beyond their own context. And this conversation has been very helpful in that regard, both seeing them in their time and in their own you know, finitude and their limited perspective, but also seeing how it has such broad application in a global context. Thank you so much, Dr. Herring, for your time and for your conversation. Uh, this has been deeply benef beneficial for us. Thank you so much for participating and joining us today. Thank you very much for uh, having this conversation and for meeting you. Uh, uh, of course, I, 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 I know Gray, but I didn't know you. So I hope one day we will meet in person, but it was a pleasure for me to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. And as soon as all of this, um, all of this stuff dies down in terms of lockdowns and quarantines, we'd love to have you to the States and talk further in person on the topic of Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink. And for everyone else, thank you for participating and being here with us today. I look forward to seeing you again next week. Take care.
Also joined by Dr. Tommy Keen. Okay, let me blank that out. <laughs> also joined by Associate Professor of New Testament. And I just said the same thing again. Let me start over again. <laughs>